Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello, and welcome to the latest instalment of Family Stories, our weekly show in which we share the extraordinary events that affected the lives of our listeners' parents and grandparents. Today, we're witness to firefights in Italy, crashed bombers in Britain, and a terrifying battle in the skies above Eastern Europe. First up is this tale from Jared Wright. Jared says, 
I love the podcast and all the media you'll produce. I had the pleasure of meeting my wife's step-grandfather, Robert Pearson. He was from Britain, South Dakota, and joined the US Army Air Force, the Mighty Eighth, after the attack on Pearl Harbor. This is Robert's story as he told it to a cousin of my wife, Mark Horvitt. Some missions were scary. Others we called milk runs because they were so easy. We made the first ten and never saw a Messerschmitt. We had to put up with flak over Berlin, but that was the worst place, and usually they only knocked down maybe five, six planes out of 500. And when you're young, well, those odds are good. But after those ten missions came the knock at the door at two in the morning. One of our group looked at his watch, said some nasty words, and asked the orderly what the devil he was doing coming in at two in the morning. He said, I tell you one thing, I'm going to be praying for all you guys. You've got 30 minutes, get dressed, get to breakfast, get to the briefing. Good luck. Boy, did it get quiet. We had a wonderful breakfast though, bacon and eggs, juice. We even got a bar of candy beside our plate to take with us. That was a hint that this was going to be a no-dinner deal. After breakfast, we went to the briefing room. Up in front, they had a stage and a curtain behind it. The officer in charge told us, you're on one of the most important missions the 8th Air Force has ever done. And the longest. We watched as a private opened the curtain. My God, here came the line across the English Channel, then across the coastal states, then across Germany. Finally, he got to the border of Czechoslovakia. We had to go there then make it back. The officer told us this was Germany's biggest oil refinery. He said if you guys can get there and knock that out, it will shorten the war for the millions of guys who are in it. Well, that was our 11th mission, and it turned out to be our last. We got in the air. I was sitting in my tail gunner position. Behind us was squadron after squadron of 17s. The cumulus clouds seemed to be prettier to me. Our plane wasn't one of the newer ones, but was touring along just as nice as could be. And I thought to myself, could those people in charge have been wrong? It's just such a nice day. And all of a sudden, the pilot breaks in, friendly planes appearing. Here came six P-47s, a pursuit plane, a fighter plane. We waved, the pilots waved back, and as soon as they were out of sight, KC broke in. Friendly planes going over the top. Here came four P-38s. They went over the top, and I thought, man, we've got help today. They had hardly gone by, and here came the best news of all. Fighter planes appearing on my left, eight P-51s, our newest ones, the plane that was now better than the Messerschmitt. We'd gotten past Frankfurt, and then somebody up front said, KC, flak up ahead. Almost instantly, flak hit. Then they came through us, wave after wave. Those Germans flying those Messerschmitts were good, courageous and very efficient. Once they got our formation broken up, just a trifle, so that the planes weren't in close formation, they came through so close they could not come through with their plane level, they had to put it in vertical formation. I could have reached out and almost touched them if I'd been at the end of the wing. They came through in groups of 20. You know what happened when that 20 got through? It was immediately followed by another 20, and another 20. Their idea was to wipe out the complete squadron. They just worked on you and they got almost everybody in time. We got the first frontal attack. I could hear those bullets as they were flying, right off the left wing of the lead plane. People always ask me, weren't you scared? Yes, you better believe it, I was scared. I said, one prayer. God, make it quick. I tried shooting, 
but by the time he got through those acrobatic manoeuvres, I probably missed that Messerschmitt by a block or two. And they had cut our ammunition anyway, because it was such a long flight. Off to my left, a plane got hit harder than we did. Both its top outside engines were burning to such a degree that I saw the wings curl up halfway through. That plane still maintained an ability to fly with the two middle engines, and out of the door I counted eight people with chutes. Then I turned and parachutes were appearing everywhere. Next, an event happened that I could never forget. Somebody killed the pilot in the Messerschmitt, and he ran right into our lead plane, whose wing we were flying off from. And all I saw was a brilliant crimson ball. The Messerschmitt's engine flew off over the formation, and the only thing that was left of the B-17 was its wings floating off into space, and I knew that ten young Americans died instantly. Then a strange thing happened. Instead of being afraid, I wasn't afraid a bit. Now my prayer was different. God, give me the chance to shoot down one of these planes. The squadron was totally eliminated. We were on our way down at an angle, and then lo and behold, here came two Messerschmitts. They joined from above, and knew full well they were going to come in from the rear. They must have thought something had happened to the tail gun. I was never cooler in my life. I knew they knew more about this than I did, so I wasn't going to start shooting till I saw the flickers of their three guns from the wing. They seemed to come up within a couple of blocks before they started shooting, and I immediately pulled onto the one on the left. Things flew off his plane. It started to smoke. I gave him a few more bursts, and then it dawned on me. Pearson, you dumb nut. You knew you hit that first one right away. Why didn't you go over to the other one? I didn't have very long to feel like I did something wrong, because here came two more. They came up, and they were so close I couldn't hardly miss. I hit the first plane right away, but this time two bursts was it, and I moved my gun. I'm conscious of all this. And then everything ended. That other Messerschmitt beat me to it. His shell, a 30mm, hit my armour plate and exploded. The only thing I remember is that instant red crimson ball again, and it disappeared instantly. I never felt anything. I never heard anything. I was just knocked out so quick. I came too, and I was being thrown from side to side. The poor pilot was trying some evasive action, but I think that helped wake me up. I could smell smoke, and I knew we were going down. I've got to get out of here, I thought. They have a little back door there just for that purpose, so I could get out. Trying to move that door against the slipstream, I just couldn't seem to do it. Then I pushed with all I could, and I squeezed, and I found myself outside the plane. But I stayed right there. I had a chest chute on, but my shoulder strap had caught on the handle. I was floating outside the plane about three or four inches from it, and that slipstream was so powerful I couldn't move. I couldn't kick the plane. I couldn't move my arm against it. And I thought, oh my God. Then I thought, wait a minute, if I slid under that strap, it had to catch on one half of that handle. Now, if I could spin the opposite way, I should slip right out of there. I tell people, don't ask me how I thought of that at the time. I have no idea. So I took a deep breath, and with the first spin, I was out. It was one of the best feelings of my life. I immediately glanced down and saw the earth was still far below me. I remember I closed my eyes and said, Thanks, God. This was the first time I'd ever parachuted. I counted to ten, just to make it official, and pulled the thing. Out came the umbrella, I gave a big pull, and zip, that parachute just shot up out of there and almost knocked me out again. I looked up, and close to the middle of the chute, three holes appeared. The middle one was as big as a kitchen table, and two on either side of it were both about the size of a card table. I thought, oh my God, I'm going down too fast. That air is going through there. I started to think about what the officer had talked about. I remembered everything he said, 
how to get your hands on the cords and pull up at the right time. You watch for fields, you watch for roads, buildings, trees, and have everything ready so when you see the grass move, you jerk up. Be an athlete, keep your legs bent, loose as you can, and the minute you pull up, you twist and try to roll. I did every one of those things, and I was out like a light anyway. Back to our listener, Jared. Robert spent time recovering from fatigue in a camp. He was interrogated by the Gestapo, reunited with some of his bomber crew in a POW camp, and then finally liberated by the Soviets a year and one day later. My wife and I visited Robert and my wife's grandmother, Waldine, in South Dakota. He showed us the Western Union message delivered to his mother, saying he'd been shot down and was unaccounted for. He also had his cup, saucer and spoon, with Nazi swastika and eagle from the prison camp, and leather bomber jacket with shrapnel holes. Robert spent his years after the war as a beloved educator in his small hometown and father to his children. He truly was a member of the greatest generation, whose story needs to continue to be told. Thank you for sharing all these stories to keep the memories of loved ones alive. This one's from Mark Palmer. Before the war, my great-grandfather was chauffeur to William Cadogan, the 7th Earl of Cadogan. He lived with his wife Emma, who was a cordon bleu-trained cook, and their son and daughter, John and Mary, my nana, just off Cadogan Square, above the garage at 54 Claybon Mews. Mary later left London and moved to Peterborough to stay with her cousin Molly. Molly's boyfriend was due to return on leave, and he asked if he could bring a friend back with him, a lad named Gordon. Gordon was a pre-war 12th Lancer, having joined up in 1935. He and Mary would later marry in 1942. As an armoured car driver mechanic, Gordon had been sent to France in October 1939 as part of the BEF. A month later, a troop of armoured cars, Gordon included, was attached to Number 3 Air and Military Mission and codenamed Phantom under Wing Commander Fairweather and, James's favourite, George Hoppy Hopkinson. Phantom's role was to provide forward reconnaissance of positions and movements of battle, reporting directly back to RAF and Army headquarters should the Germans enter Belgium. Most accounts suggest that on the 10th of May 1940, in response to Germany's invasion of Belgium, the first British troops crossed the border at 1pm. However, Phantom were already at Waterloo by this point, having crossed the frontier earlier that morning. During the retreat, Gordon defended the beaches at Dupin and then spent 13 hours in the water before being rescued on the 31st of May. This would cause him issues with his lungs for the rest of his life. On his safe return to England, Gordon was transferred permanently to Phantom, later known as GHQ Liaison Regiment, spending the rest of the war with them. Phantom was considered Hoppy's private army, operating outside the standard structures. Their secretive work left them relatively unknown among the public, but within the military, Phantom was regarded as an elite signals organisation. Gordon spent the early years of the war in Britain, being commanded by actor David Niven. We have a photograph thought to have been taken at one of Niven's parties, which includes David Niven, director Leslie Howard, sporting a tuxedo and moustache, and actress Sally Gray, alongside some phantoms, including Gordon. He spent the second half of his war in North Africa, working with the First Army, and then moved up through Italy, returning home in December 1945. Meanwhile, Mary's brother John was a wages clerk with the RAOC, 
attached to the 18th Division. In 1942, on his way to North Africa, the 18th Division were rerouted to assist in the defence of Singapore. John was captured during the fall of Singapore and forced to work on the Thai-Burma Railway. He helped to build the first bridge over the River Kwai, but perished in August 1943, before the completion of the second, Metal Bridge. He's buried in Chung Kai War Cemetery. John and Mary's parents sent a Christmas greetings note to Gordon in Italy in 1944, noting that there had been no news of John, not knowing that he had in fact died 14 months earlier. As a boy interested in the war, I was forbidden from referring to the Japanese in any form in front of my nana. The resentment was still very much present, even 60 years later. Such was the anguish that no one had previously applied for John's medals. We have recently been successful in our application and we can now proudly display John's 1939-1945 star, Pacific star and war medal alongside his brother-in-law's medals. It has been an honour and very humbling to be the one researching our family's history, hidden through secret untold organisations and buried by anguish for so many years. I couldn't have done it without the help of all those other professional and amateur historians within the independent company and beyond, searching their own topics and their family stories who have helped along the way. Please keep up the great work, everyone, and may we all find our hidden history for which we continue the search. Mark Palmer, proud grandson and grandnephew. This one comes from listener Jonathan Hutt. Hi all, obligatory gushing review of the pod. I'm writing to you about my grampy, Charles Thomas Briggs. He joined the army on the 1st of October 1925 at the age of 18. I'm told he joined up as he didn't get along with his stepmother and wanted an escape, his own mother having died when he was just four. He joined the Oxen Bucks and spent time in Germany, India and Burma, fighting in Persia, the Middle East, North Africa and Italy. While researching our family tree, we came across a commendation record, and it's this I wanted to share. In Italy, between the 15th and 21st of February 1944, his battalion was overrun. Charles found himself as acting RSM, and by the night of the 9th of February, only a few small elements of the battalion remained. The men formed a perimeter around their battalion HQ, and found themselves under incessant mortar and artillery fire from all sides. After one attack... The enemy forces established a strong position behind a disabled tank and called in accurate and heavy fire at close range. Charles realised the urgency of the situation and organised a small party for a counter-attack. He led the assault himself, with the enemy increasing fire in an attempt to annihilate the British lads. But they fought hard, and despite the odds, forced the enemy to flee. The commendation says, The example set by this warrant officer was of the very highest order and an inspiration to all, the successful holding of the last vital position at Regimental HQ against such great odds was due in no small degree to his outstanding conduct. Charles was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal for his part in the action. He left the army in 1954 and settled just outside Oxford. Unfortunately for me, I never knew my grampy, as he died two months before I was born. I'm amazed at being related to someone who showed such courage, as I know I wouldn't have been able to do this. As a side note... He worked on laying the original runway on the airfield that is rumoured to be the one being used for filming Masters of the Air. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. Jonathan Hutt They used to say, go west. What they meant was, go forward. Find your own way. 
make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy, but discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Our next story comes from regular listener Al Allen. About ten years ago, my godfather sought to insure some medals we had in the family. My great-uncle Ben won a DSM in World War II, and his father, my great-grandfather, also won a DSM in the First World War. This persuaded me to research their awards and service. My great-uncle was a career sailor who served on numerous ships pre-war. He was on a destroyer in Hong Kong in the 1930s, and in 1937 he was in Shanghai flying the flag during the international settlement with the Japanese. He came back to the UK and was on Atlantic escort duty until 1942, when he joined HMS Cadmus. By this stage he was an acting chief petty officer and a coxswain. Cadmus swept mines before the Allied landings in North Africa and Sicily, and swept the Messina Strait and around Anzio, where they came under fire from the shore batteries. The flotilla then swept mines in support of the Allied advance between Naples and Leghorn, clearing more than a thousand mines. Uncle Ben was awarded his DSM for perseverance and great devotion to duty during his time. He and the Cadmus went on to liberate Greek islands and sweep Genoa before the end of the war. His father, who was a real character, was also a career sailor, joining in the 1890s. He was frequently promoted only to be disrated and he spent periods of time in cells, including 30 days in Darlinghurst, Australia, for drinking and fighting. 
He had just left the Royal Navy when he was recalled in 1914, spending the war on board HMS Hildebrand, which was a merchant cruiser. There was no citation for his DSM, but he claimed he'd been at the helm when he steered the ship away from a torpedo attack, which then hit another vessel. Apparently, father and son winning the same award in two wars is quite rare. Best wishes, Al Allen. This one comes from James Bevan. Growing up, my grandfather, Harry J. Bevan, was quite possibly my biggest role model and personal inspiration. He was the oldest brother of three, born in 1918, and spent most of his childhood and early adulthood growing up in the northeastern Pennsylvania town of Frackville, where his childhood home still sits and where my great-grandparents are buried today. In 1940, he left Frackville and volunteered to join the Army Air Corps. After basic training, he was stationed in Tampa Bay, Florida in 1941. He received further specialist training as a tail gunner in a B-26 Marauder crew and spent the first two and a half years of his service soaking up the Florida sun, flying in U-boat spotting missions, and was witness to the constant losses of early marauder crews attempting to learn how to fly the aircraft. Luckily, in his case he was under the control of a more experienced pilot and co-pilot, and was spared being a victim of the one-day-in-Tampa-Bay debacle. However, he did have a close call while on duty as a lifeguard, and it would not be his last. He told me he was on duty and saw a fellow airman getting caught in a rip current, who then started to drown. Growing up, he'd always been a strong swimmer, and so he figured he could break into the current and pull the poor guy out. But, as soon as he got within the rip current, it began to suck him under too, and now he was struggling to pull himself out. As he started to lose his strength, he began to black out, but by some miracle a wave came by and lifted him out of the current and dumped him onto the shore. He came to a minute or so later, but couldn't find the man he went out to save one of the unfortunate victims of a non-military accident that occurred during times of war and peace. By July 1943, Harry was in Europe flying the first of many sorties over France. Most of those missions were flown with his original crew in the B-26 they named Thumbs Up. His crew were very fortunate and didn't lose anyone during the time he flew with them in combat. Later, he was reassigned to a different crew in a bomber named Bad Penny. His fifth mission with Bad Penny would be his last. They made it to the target, dropped their payload and were on their way back to England. During the flight home he came back to the top turret gunner and asked if he would mind switching position. The gunner agreed and took my grandfather's tail gunner spot. The return flight was uneventful until they made their final approach to land. As the marauder got closer to the ground my grandfather, now in the top turret, noticed they were coming in faster than usual. They clipped a tree only seconds from landing and the plane cartwheeled and started to break up, sending the back half of the plane in one direction and the front half another. The top turret acted as a roll cage, sheltering him and keeping him from being completely tossed about. On impact, he hit his head and was knocked out. When he came to, he got up and set about looking for the other members of the crew. The gunner he'd switched position with was alive but badly injured. My grandfather pulled him out of the wreckage, and then searched for the rest of the crew. Tragically, the front half and the wings had folded in on themselves, and he could only find the scattered remains of the men he was just flying with. An ambulance driver pulled up shortly afterwards and shouted, Hey Mac, you know there's a bomber that just crashed over there? My grandfather responded, Yeah, no kidding, I just walked out of it. He spent a few weeks recovering in hospital with a fractured wrist and bruised ribs. 
As fate would have it, his younger brother had just ditched his B-24 somewhere off the coast of Sicily and had recently made it to a hospital himself. He was able to phone my grandfather and asked, Hey Harry, how's your war going? They apparently had a good time catching up and joked about the scare they gave their mum over the two telegrams she would receive in the next week. They both returned to duty and my grandfather completed 60 missions before being rotated back to the States just before the Normandy invasion. He finished his service in Texas at the end of 1945 and met my grandmother in Atlantic City, New Jersey, a year later. After the war, he became an electrician, got married and moved to Philadelphia. There he worked tireless to raise his family, working as an electrician in the daytime and stocking grocery store shelves in the evening. He eventually raised nine kids, and I'm his youngest grandson. In 2015, he passed away at the age of 97, but was as sharp as a tack until the very end, and never minded taking the time to tell me about his experiences during the war. There is no doubt in my mind that he is one of the biggest reasons why I've become completely obsessed with history, as someone who was not only a direct link to the past, but someone who I wholeheartedly loved and had the privilege of calling Grandpop. Thanks. James Bevan. This last one comes from Miles Dixon. I would like to add my modest contribution to family stories. My father was a GP in Surrey and I grew up with a fascination for medical things which ultimately led me to pursue my own medical career. Like many of my generation, I also had an abiding fascination with all things relating to World War II, reading War Picture Library and Commando comics, making airfix models and devouring films about the war. I remember my father telling me tales of his experience during the war, but it wasn't until he and I were much older that I really appreciated what he'd been through. My father was one of three brothers who served during World War II. He was a pilot in the RAF, and his oldest brother was an RAF senior officer who had a mainly administrative role. Their middle brother served in the Royal Sussex Regiment and was awarded an MC during the Italian campaign. Sadly, he was killed shortly after being promoted to captain. I wish I knew more about him, but I have his medals and citation, and I believe he was a very brave man. After leaving school, my father did a short pre-medical science course before joining the RAF in 1942, age 19. He was sent to Canada to learn to fly, and returned in 1943 with over 200 hours flying in his logbook. Following further training in navigation and aerial photography, he was posted to 168 Squadron. This was a photo reconnaissance unit equipped with Mark I Mustangs, he flew over 30 operations, mainly over northern France in the run-up to D-Day. Some of these operations were searching for V-1 launch sites. While returning from one sortie on the 21st of June 1944, he was hit by friendly fire over American lines and wounded in his right foot. Unsure whether he would be able to nurse his Mustang back across the channel, he made a forced landing at an airfield near Basenville. After bringing his plane to a halt, he climbed out of the cockpit and sat on the wing with his wounded foot, unable to walk. One of the ground crew arrived on a horse, and after exchanging pleasantries, explained that the horse was the only means of transport available. My father professed to an extreme mistrust of horses, but was reassured and told that the horse knew the way to the first aid tent. Rather reluctantly, he mounted the horse, which set off at a stately pace. After a few yards, a flight of Spitfire was scrambled, causing the horse to bolt. My father clung on for dear life as the horse galloped towards the first aid area. 
Fortunately, a quick-witted member of the ground crew managed to calm the horse and rescue him. He never rode a horse again. After spending some time in hospital, he returned to his squadron and found their role had been changed to ground attack and was now re-equipped with typhoons. In November 1944, the squadron was posted to an airfield at Eindhoven, which had been captured by American paratroopers during Operation Market Garden. There followed many sorties over enemy territory, attacking targets on the ground, especially trains. On Christmas Eve 1944, my father was flying his 51st operational sortie. He was flying number two, attacking a train and was fairly certain he'd scored a direct hit. Making a second pass to check, he was hit by flak. He managed to bail out and spent the last few months of the war in Stalag Luft 1. After being liberated and repatriated by the Americans, he returned to flying and was posted to Northumberland, where he expressed a desire to remain in the RAF, but he was released to be a medical student. When my father was in his late 80s, I had the opportunity to take him on a privately guided tour of the RAF Museum at Hendon. Unbeknown to my father, the museum has the only intact typhoon currently in existence. When we came across it, I asked him to stand near it for a photograph. He said, The last time I was closer than this to a typhoon, I was inside it, upside down and trying to get out. I was trying to release my safety harness when I realised that I was about to release my parachute. Fortunately for both of us, he managed to correct that mistake. To this day, I still find it extraordinary that people of my father's generation went through so much at an age when I was just entering medical school. What is perhaps even more extraordinary is how they went back to a normal civilian life after the war. I'm not sure that I would have been able to. Best wishes, Miles Dixon. That's it for today. If you've got a family story you'd like considered for the show, please email us at wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com and please make your subject family stories so we don't miss it. Or you can go to our members' site and leave them under the family stories tab. Thank you very much for listening.